as we come to the end of uh, today's lectures, we turn to the subject of the law of God versus the law of man. And then next week, Lord willing, we will start the detailed exposition of the law of God of the Ten Commandments in one lecture after the other, in pretty exhaustive detail, I would hope, in accordance with our standards. Now, today, as we round off this introduction to the law of God, I think we need to understand that all people live under law. It really is a myth to say either under law or under grace. That's not true. Uh, it's not true that you have the option of living under law or not living under law. The fact is, all people do live under law. They either live under God's law or they live under the law of man or under the law of communism or under the law of humanism or under the law of Buddhism or under the law of Islam or under the law of Judaism or under the law of paganism. All men are under law. The only question is, is it God's law that you're under, or is it the law of someone other than God, some false system of morality, or under your own notions and under your own law? That's the decision. In the second place, we need to see that the only system of law which is gracious that you can live under is God's law God's law is the only law that's full of grace there is no grace in Islamic law there's no grace in Judaistic law there's no grace in pagan law there's no grace in communist law there's no grace in socialist law there's no grace in humanist law there's no grace in individualistic law where each one does his own thing and get out of my way world before I knock you out of my way there's no grace in that you'll notice that I'm contrasting the law of God even with Judaistic law why do I say that? never make the mistake of assuming that modern Judaism is the legitimate religion of the Old Testament it isn't if anything, modern Judaism is farther removed from the Old Testament law than Islam is. Modern Judaism is a worldwide anti-Christian religion at war against Jesus Christ and indeed at war against the proper and complete interpretation of the Old Testament, not to speak of the New Testament. Modern Judaism follows the Jewish Talmud which is an uninspired uh, written commentary on portions of the Old Testament and commentary on Jewish oral tradition outside of the Old Testament modern Judaism does not follow the Old Testament Jesus said to the Jews of his time if you people really did believe Moses as you falsely claim to then you would believe me because Moses wrote about me but the fact that you do not believe me and do not come to me shows that you do not really believe Moses as you say you do but you don't who wrote about me you see then it is useless to read either portions of the Bible as the Jehovah's Witnesses do 
or smaller portions of the Bible as the modern Jews do or still smaller, smaller portions of the Bible and a great deal of the Koran as Mohammedans do or let me say it's useless to be a New Testament Christian and read that portion of the Bible known as the New Testament and ignore the rest of the Bible and still pretend and claim to love and to follow the true triune God and Christ of scriptures no if you love the true Christ of Scripture, the, the triune God, you love every word of God that he has given us from Genesis to Revelation. And as you love Genesis to Revelation, and you take it seriously, that is going to teach you more and more about the true triune God, who is the only God that there is, alongside of which all other gods, even if they claim to be the true God, are nothing other than damnable idols. So, we need to have our heads screwed on right. I'm saying then that every man lives under law. There isn't a man alive who is not living under some system of law. And that the choice is not whether you want to live under law or whether you don't. The question is whether it's God's law that you're living under or someone else's law. And I'm saying secondly that God's law is the only system of law that's full of grace and truth. There is no grace in any other system of law, including Judaistic law. Grace is found only in God's law, that is, in law as revealed in the Old and the New Testament, the Bible, the Word of God. And it's a gracious law. One of the best books ever written on the law was written by a reformed Baptist in uh, England Ernest Kevin uh, who I believe was the head of uh, the London Bible College the title of the book is excellent The Grace of Law I urge you to get that book to read it, to memorize it if you can The Grace of Law and in that book Kevin the Baptist rightly demonstrates uh, that the law of God the Ten Commandments the Decalogue is full of the grace of the Lord uh, Kevin K-E-V-A-N Ernest F. Kevin K-E-V-A-N The Grace of Law is the title of that book the excellent get it and reread it and re-reread it so if you want to taste more of the grace of God that is God's unlimited goodness towards us and his love and his joy and all of his gifts you've got to get more into his law and in reading and studying the law of God we must remember that this is the law of a God of love and a God of grace and a God who gives us his law telling us the things he does tell us in his law because these are the signs of love that he has toward us you see if God didn't love us he wouldn't give us his law if we want to be happy it's essential that we learn to love God that one true God the triune God with all of our hearts bodies minds and souls there's no other way that you as the image of God can be truly happy unless you love God in that way and if you just give God part of your life but not the whole of your life you're not going to be happy you're going to have to learn to keep the first commandment and have no other gods in your life before that means ahead of or alongside of 
for the true God. God must be the only God, the only object of affection and devotion in your life and mine if you would be truly happy and truly contented. And it's only by God's grace, of course, uh, that we are made willing to live in this way. But because God graciously and unmeritedly condescends to our level, gets down to our level, and gives us these laws that we should thank him and be grateful to him. And when you move on to the second commandment, that too is a gracious law, a gracious law. Because in the, second com in the first commandment, God says, worship only the triune God and no other God. The second commandment says, when worshipping the triune God, worship him in the right way. Don't try to worship the true God in the wrong way. And of course, what the second commandment prohibits is trying to make a picture of God or a statue of God. I, I faced this thing uh, many times in Africa when well-meaning Western missionaries take this wretched picture of a long-haired, blue-eyed, blonde hippie that they dare to call Jesus Christ and take it to black people and try to get these black people committed to following this long-haired, blue-eyed hippie. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, and now the Roman Catholic Church, not to be outdone, has made uh, pictures of a pitch black Virgin Mary with a pitch black little baby uh, with black eyes and with dark peppercorn hair. And they're not to be outdone when they get to China. They have a yellow-skinned Jesus uh, with slant eyes. Well, now look, it doesn't bother me particularly what skin color or eye color or hair texture my Savior had, because I do not worship the human nature of Jesus. I worship his divine nature behind and in spite of his human nature. But if you ask me my honest impression, I would think that the Lord Jesus probably had black eyes uh, and not blue eyes inasmuch as uh, if there is a prediction of his physical appearance in, um, in um, Genesis 49 I think it is, as the Lion of Judah, uh, this seems to be an indication. And as to the hair color of the Lord Jesus, the only indication we have in the word of God is in the highly symbolic language of uh, Revelation 1 where we're told his hair was white as wool. And I have not yet seen a Sunday school picture or a chart of a hippie that's supposed to be Jesus with snow white, curly, wool-like hair. It doesn't seem to have occurred to any of these perverted artists to try and draw Jesus in the one way that he's described as being in his resurrected and exalted state. Not that I think we ever should try to draw pictures of Jesus. The point I'm saying is, any time you try to draw a picture of Jesus, A, you will not do justice to him, because the artist doesn't have the power to portray him as he really is, B, what is being portrayed is an outrageous lie, because we do not know that Jesus looked like that. Third, it's a transgression of the second commandment. And fourth, it's going to upset somebody else of a culture other than yours who doesn't like the racialistic way in, in which you have portrayed Jesus looking like your race but not like his. And we must not racialize Jesus Christ or our God. Our God is not a tribal God. Our God is the God of all of the earth. And this is one reason why we must not attempt to try to form a human picture or, uh, or
portrait of Jesus Christ. I think it's very significant that our Saviour came to earth in a time before there were any cameras so that no one could have taken a snapshot of him. I think that's very significant and that he tells the woman at the well, God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's a gracious thing, I say, that God gives us that second law. It's a gracious thing. Because when we break that second law and when we try to get a picture of God, we'll feel it falls flat it, it makes God look less majestic than he really is because the picture is stained by the limitations of the artist. We've transgressed God's law in doing it and we've upset some other people or culture around the world that may happen to look at this picture. So, there we are. The third commandment is a gracious commandment because it requires us to treat the name of God with dignity. And not just the name of God, but it also requires us to treat with dignity everything that God has made. Perhaps you hadn't realized that. That the third commandment is broken whenever we treat anything that God has made uh, with uh, disrespect or with lack of dignity. And in the fourth commandment, uh, it's a commandment of grace. God doesn't want us to be enslaved and to wear ourselves out uh, by working seven days a week. He wants us to work six days and do all of our, not four and a half days, or three and a half days, but six days. Uh, but on the seventh day, God wants us to rest in his finished work and rejuvenate our batteries. Now, so far I've been a little negative. Now let me be positive on these gracious commands of Almighty God. You see, if it is the one true triune God that you're worshipping, and no one else in terms of the first commandment, then you will never worship a creature or part of creation which will only cause things to fall flat. Supposing you say, as some lovers do, I worship you, I adore you. Or some women do, look at their little child, isn't he adorable? And they adore this child. Let me tell you, every male lover, every female lover, and every child that is worshipped in that way uh, has clay feet, and uh, you will end up with a broken heart. You really will. There's not a person, no matter how noble they are, that walks the face of the earth who's worth worshipping. Because they're none of them perfect. And if you're going to put your affection and your worship on any human being in the world, no matter how wonderful you think they are right now, you're going to end up a bitterly unhappy person. And God wants to spare you that heartache. And that's why God graciously says to you, look here, don't have any other God than me. Because I'm the only God, the only one on whom you should devote all of your affections who will never break your heart. And I'm so pleased that when I proposed to my wife, I said to her, now let's get this straight. I will never ever love you anything like the way that I love God. And I don't ever want you to love me anything like the way you love, you must love God. God must come first in your life, not me. God must come first in my life, not you. And as we look away from one another at God, each of us, we will then be attracted to one another. 
And let me tell you, the best way of breaking up a romance or a marriage is for two people to look away from God and to go all gaga goo goo looking at one another. It will wreck that romance in one year, five years, ten years, as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow. If you want a long and a happy marriage, the only secret is to look away from one another and one another's faults and look at Almighty God. And then, to love one another only because you are creatures of God and to love one another for Christ's sake and not to love one another because you see in that other person something that you want to totally give yourself to even whether there is a God or not. God will wreck it. God will smash it. We are to love God and God alone. We are to love him all the time. And in loving our wives, we are only to love our wives at all because it is God who tells us to love our wife. And it is God that we are loving as we love him through his creature, our wife, that he orders us to love. Now that seems unromantic to you. Well, I'm sorry. Except that I can assure you that that's the way that marriages stay together in a disciplined form, in a productive form, and in a form which satisfies all of the parties concerned. And second, when God tells us that in worshipping him and him alone, uh, we are uh, to worship him spiritually, and not by trying to make something to remind us of him, a picture or a statue, to worship him spiritually, that graciously elevates us. We become unhappy if we try to make a picture of God and then look at it. doesn't satisfy us. doesn't satisfy others. But when we are, bear in mind that the true God is a spirit, and when we worship him in the power of the Holy Spirit, and when we plead to God to increase the supply of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can worship him and serve him in the right way, in the way of the Spirit, then and then alone are we truly happy. And as far as the third commandment is concerned, we're only going to be truly happy when we abide by the grace of God's law and treat God's name with respect. Don't use it as a letter of punctuation or as an expletive deletive every time we miss the nail and bash our thumb with a hammer. And when we treat everything that God has made in the universe with the dignity which it deserves to be treated with, and every person with the dignity that he deserves to be treated with, because created by this God, whose name we must honor at all times, even when we are dealing with creatures that he has made, then we become happy. And as far as the fourth commandment is concerned, not only do we become unhappy and make God unhappy when we work on the Sabbath day, when we should be worshipping him, but... It's a wonderful thing that God has given us six days to work. One of the tragedies of man today, I think, is that so many people are desperately unhappy in their daily work. You watch these people drag themselves off to work. Their heart and mind is not in it. They're not working six days hard to the glory of God. They're doing it to get money which they can blow on some party at the weekend or go out on a, on a, on a yacht or a cruise round the bay or whatever. I don't think I know of anything sadder and more depressive and more unhappy than a person who has to do something five or six days every week as a school teacher, as a housewife, or yes, even as a preacher, if they don't really love 
every minute of it. You say, well, how can one love work? How can one love work? Well, the Germans say, Arbeit macht süß. It is sweet to work. It's wonderful to work. Uh, let me quote Christian just for this once with appreciation and with approval. Work is the necessity of every healthy human being. True. If you don't work, you're going to be bored, miserable, and unhappy. And if you love your work so that your work consumes you on the altar of a sacrifice to Almighty God, then, frankly, at the end of the day, you don't down your tools and take as many coffee breaks in the day as you can, but you're almost sorry to have to quit, and you put in extra hours, and, and, and you're invigorated by that work, and everything adds up, and you know that your life has meaning, and you know that you're bringing your whole personality to bear with the gifts that God has given you in the context where he's appointed you to further his kingdom. But you see, the only way you can be happy in work, in your daily work, is to see your daily work as a legitimate field to which God has called you to promote his kingdom, whose, uh, of which you are a citizen and in whose service he has placed you. That's why it's so important to understand that all kinds of work uh, undertaken by a Christian a constitute full-time Christian service. If you anabaptistically have this, this lethal notion while you're a bank clerk or a truck driver or a banana grower that you really should be selling the banana farm and, and, and go galloping off to Bongo Bongo Land as some kind of a missionary and you feel you've got a guilty conscience as you, as you pluck your bananas and as you drive your truck you'll never be happy in your work and then every time you go to the pietistic Arminian church and see some missionary from Umblugublu Land telling you how many souls is led to the Lord and then challenging you to go and then you feel uh, terribly uh, switched off and guilty that's no way to relate to your work that's why I took so much time a little earlier quoting from Luther and from Calvin about this we need a godly Christian doctrine of work now there are some professions of course that a Christian cannot undertake to the glory of God Roman Catholic woman phoned me from Cairns in Queensland a couple of months ago and she said I'm a Pentecostalist my husband's a Pentecostalist but really we're Roman Catholics oh yes <laughs> have I met you well uh, well no you haven't but you see we both received Jesus as our Lord and Savior a year ago and my husband's a bookmaker and uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether he really should continue to be a bookmaker what do you think I said, well, what I think is that bookmaking and gambling breaks all ten commandments all at once in some or other way. And I think your husband needs to quit. Well, yeah, I kind of think so too, but it makes him very angry every time I tell him that. And, uh, and he thinks until the Holy Spirit gives him a special revelation or a dream or something, he's not going to quit. Well, <laughs> is it any wonder? that that woman and her husband are perturbed and dissatisfied in their work while claiming to be Christians and perhaps trying after a while they're in a kind of a work where I don't think it's possible in any way to be a Christian to the glory of God and it may be 
if we're not going to pull our weight in determining to re-Christianize society, that there may be more and more areas of life where we Christians are going to get crowded out because we don't take our stand at a time when we can. This whole question of Sunday work, compulsory Sunday work, is an area where we've got to join the battle. Otherwise, we may find in a few years' time Christians not able to get employment in an employment that would be godly on any other day of the week simply because will be required as a condition of employment to work on the Lord's Day. So, um, this shows too why we need to get involved in these issues while we can and roll back this tide of godlessness, which we can do and must do and under God shall do in the power of His Spirit. But are you in the job that God would have you be in? Of course, as we occupy a job, uh, no job is perfect. We need to be realistic. Until the second coming of Christ, there will always be some aspects in every job a Christian has which needless. Um, no matter how dedicated to the Lord you are, no matter how happy you are in the job that you're in, and no matter how much you see that job as your service to the Lord, in terms of the fourth commandment, six days shalt thou labor, there will in this imperfect society be some things in that job that will make you unhappy as you do them, or some people with whom you'll be working who make you unhappy. That's unavoidable, and you need to realistically accept that so that it doesn't grieve you, or so that the mere presence of those features should not make you wonder whether you're in the right job or not. What's the solution? 1 Corinthians 7 Let every man remain in the calling with which God has called him. If God has caused you, called you in this respect, remain there. If God has called you even as a slave, remain a slave. But if you get offered your freedom as a slave, grab it. What does that mean? Be satisfied with the job that you have, but if you get offered promotion or job change which you can see, can better enable you in a happier way to serve God, grab that job change. Otherwise, don't. And so too if you're married. If you're married, don't look round for a divorce. If you divorce, don't look round to remarry. But if you remarry, you haven't sinned. And if you're single, don't go fretting and wish that you uh, were married. And if you're married, don't look back and say, Oh, what a fool I was. I should never have gotten married. I had my freedom when I was single. No. Uh, accept the condition in which you find yourself at the moment and uh, do the best that you can to the glory of God in that condition, especially for Razor. And while I was there, I tried to do the best job that I could. And when the Lord opened the door for me to come to Australia, I have done that. And that's what each one of us must do in the condition that we're in. You see, as Calvin says, it is only if you can accept yourself being in that job six days per week, working to the glory of God. If you can accept that as the will of God for you until such time as he might change it, that you will be happy in the condition you're in. If you're always looking over the fence and thinking that the grass on the other side of the fence is greener than where you are, that someone else's job would be, if you could only have that job, you'd be so much happier than you are and a lot happier than that man is who has that job who's not really appreciating it. Um, it's, it, it's like having a row with your wife and then seeing what a nice lady the beautiful neighbor's wife is and saying, well now I married the wrong, wrong woman. But the fact is, there's so many things about that beautiful uh, woman who's your neighbor that you don't know yet. 
And if you could only sit down and have all the facts in front of you, you'd thank God you are married to the woman you are married to and not married to the neighbor's wife. But this is Satan trying to get us dissatisfied with what we have. You see? So that in the end, we lose many of the joys that we do have now and then we end up miserable. Uh, and Satan loves to make us miserable. Satan loves to make us unhappy. That's why Satan, through antinomianism, loves to take Christians away from the law of God. Because when Christians are removed from the law of God, that's like taking a fish out of a goldfish pond. We flounder around, we're unhappy, we're miserable. We begin to suffocate and to die. Because God's law is our environment. We can only be happy as the image of God when we stay within the pool of God's law, as it were. Oh, that we would learn this. God gives us the law because he loves us. Let's go on. God says, thou shalt not kill. Now, if you've ever killed anybody, <laughs> you know you don't feel very good after killing them. And he doesn't feel very good after being killed. And his uh, next of kin don't feel very good about the fact that he's been killed. And you're miserable after killing him. Oh, you say, well, don't be facetious. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus say that if you're angry with someone without just cause, you've broken that commandment? So if you and I lash out in anger unjustly uh, against someone, we've got no right to do that and we're wrong and we lose our temper. A woman ran my car from behind uh, uh, two weeks ago. And she cursed and swore and called me every name under the sun. It was a stop street. I stopped at the red light. And she called me a so-and-so. She says, why didn't you go through the red light? You're scared a truck's going to hit you, etc., etc., etc. And I said, well, now, look, let's calm down. Could I please have your name and your address? And she was most uncooperative. Anyway, after much prayer, I've decided to go ahead and sue her. Because uh, uh, I think that this, this is what's needed to bring her to her senses. Uh, but at any rate, what I'm saying is, um, <laughs> we could be murderous in our, in our attitude to one another, you see. And uh, really, we, I, I'm sure that poor woman is really a very unhappy person. And uh, I'm so grateful I didn't yell and scream at her after she ran me from behind uh, the way she yelled and screamed at me. Uh, I was just grateful to the Lord. And I said to her, isn't it wonderful? Neither of us are, are, are hurt. And then she swore at me again. What was wonderful about this? I should have run the red light as she was planning to do behind me. Why did I put the brakes on? <laughs> Except that she said it in much more expletive, deleted language than I've just given it to you. Well, really, if we want to be happy, we've got to learn to live at peace with our neighbor, as much as it depends upon us. Uh, we can't go around with lives full of malice and anger and frustration, and uh, it's no way to live. It's no way to live. Oh, and I omitted the fifth commandment, didn't I, at this point? Honor thy father and thy mother. It's because God loves us that he graciously gives us that commandment. We've got to learn to live under uh, subjection. All of us must be subject to God because we are creatures and he's the creator. We're unhappy if we don't subject ourselves to God. But listen, not only are you unhappy 
if you don't subject yourself to God, but you're also unhappy even if you think you do subject yourself to God, but you don't also subject yourself to those people that God says you should be subjecting yourself to. A child, a boy or a girl that says, I love Jesus, but is disobedient to mom and dad, is an unhappy child. Why? Because it is by obeying mom and dad, as God says we should, that we're obeying God. You can't really say you love God. You can't be serious if you're going to disobey father and mother that God says you must obey. And the unhappiest boys and girls that I've ever met in my life are those that will not obey their parents. And what about women, <laughs> married women? God says, obey your husbands. Oh, today I'm going to obey my husband. I'm as good as he is. In fact, if anything, I'm superior to him, or at least his equal. I won't obey him. I won't do that. I love Jesus. My husband's horrible. My husband's a monster. My husband isn't saved. I'm saved. I won't listen to him. Hmm? Is this the sign of a converted woman? If the God that you say that you serve says honor and respect your husband, it doesn't say if he's saved, it says honor and respect him because he's your husband. And you're not doing that? And you say you love Jesus? My goodness. And let me say this, you're not happy. The devil will say to you, you'll only be happy when you rebel against your husband. That's nonsense. It's the other way around. You'll only be happy when you're repaying your husband. There is no other way for a married woman to be happy than in subjection and obedience to her husband. Of course, it works both ways, you understand. That same commandment requires that husbands must love their wives and must be prepared to lay down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his life for his bride. And I always tell girls this, I tell my daughters this, never marry a man who's not prepared to die for you. It's not worth marrying. It's true. I ask myself time and time again, am I really prepared, if push comes to shove, to die for my wife? Because if I'm not, I'm a pretty poor husband, according to the word of God. And what kind of a parent am I? The word of God says, in terms of the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that this means fathers and mothers raise your children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. That means I must feed my children, shelter my children, instruct my children, school my children, catechize my children, take my children to church, love them and hug them. And if I'm not doing this... I'm a pretty miserable Christian, then it's false for me to go around saying, Yahoo! Yippee! I love Jesus! Even though I don't love my children so much. Nonsense! Nonsense! It is within the context of me loving my children and as being perceived by others as loving my children that the veracity of my claim to love Jesus, who tells me I must love my children, is demonstrated or is belied. You see? And it's because God loves me. Because he graciously loves me that he tells me I must love my wife. Do you know if I don't love my wife, I get miserable and unhappy. I really do. And I don't love her in, uh, as much as I should. And I need to get down on my knees, especially when she's been disobedient. And I say, Lord, this woman's disobedient. But you tell me to love her, not when she's obedient. You tell me to love her at all times, even when she's disobedient. And when I do that and God increases my love for her, 
Believe me, she really meant so. There's nothing like a loving husband to cure a disobedient wife of her disobedience. There's nothing like an obedient wife to cure an unloving husband of his lack of love. That's how it works. That's how it works. And so God's law is wonderful, people. God's law is loaded with his Holy Spirit. God's law is gracious. We must live under the law of God. To live under the law of man, which rejects the law of God, is for us to make ourselves miserable and unhappy and unspiritual and unfruitful. And you don't want to be unhappy, do you? Well then, obey the commandments of God. Now then, what about the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Ah, oh, says Satan, look at your old wife now. She's getting grey. And, and she's getting too many crow's feet round her eyes. And uh, she doesn't have that beautiful figure that you thought she had once upon a time. Look at that luscious secretary. You could be so much happier with her. And she's so much more liberated and has a much more uh, freer attitude towards sex and who knows what. And you follow Satan's wicked advice. And you commit adultery in thought or in word or in deed against your dear wife that you promised to love and to cherish. You not only break her heart, you not only drag your children's name through the mud when all of this comes out, you not only discredit your usefulness in the kingdom of God, but you know something? After a few inadequate high points of sensual pleasure and I'll grant that adultery probably could be very pleasurable uh, a couple of times but not nearly as pleasurable as the devil will tell you it would be the remorse the heartache the regret the anguish the shame that will dog you after that the rest of your life until you repent and 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 take it to God for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus I'm telling you it's not worth it only an idiot would ever commit adultery lunacy it really is lunacy because it not only destroys yourself and your reputation but those that you really do love it shames them and your own parents good grief a person would be lunatic to commit adultery and yet, of course, adultery is committed, which shows how loony the human race is. You thrust the law of God to one side. You put the law of man, love me tonight, and let the devil take tomorrow in its place. You live to regret it. So be far from it. Be far from it. And what about the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Well, it means you mustn't steal from me. I mustn't steal from you. But it means much more than that. It means I must work hard and accumulate wealth and then give some of it to people who are poor and show them how to work hard and to accumulate wealth. And when we do that, the standard of living rises. When the standard of living rises, we have more take-home pay, more um, uh, income available for others of the good things of life. That makes us happy. But if you go around stealing, 
where you finally get apprehended and put into jail. There's again the disgrace of the family. It impoverishes society. Society which really should require you to make fourfold restitution. At the moment, unfortunately, won't. It will send you to a model prison and give you a, a colour TV or something ridiculous and milk the rest of society and overtax the taxpayer to look after you. And finally, society becomes cynical and there's a breakdown of law and order. People start carrying guns around and there's violence and we are in an unhappy situation. And what about the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It means tell the truth at all times. Uh, it means not only you should tell the truth about me and the other way around, but it means we should tell the truth about our work. It means that if our job is to classify bugs, if that's our job, we must analyze the bugs so carefully and categorize them so carefully uh, uh, that the bugs are truthfully labeled, truthfully described, and that we don't take any shortcuts in doctoral dissertations or whatever that we're writing about a particular bug. You see, it means that the whole of science and art is to be truthful. It means that we are to be uh, authentic and genuine in the music that we write and enjoy, in the, uh, the paintings that we, that we paint, um, in the literature that we compose or read. It's a very broad thing. Because if we're going to poison our minds with untruth, with lies, with malicious representation about other people or other nations, which are not true, or pornography, which uh, finally is not true, because life really isn't the way, not even sexually, that pornographers like to portray it. It's a lie. Then we are going to make ourselves and many other people miserably unhappy. We must be truthful, because that's the only way to be happy. And the way of the lie is the way of death. And the lie in the Garden of Eden was the first and the most vicious of all uh, sins lies is the mother of all other sins. Satan is the father of the lie. We need to be truthful. We need to be candid in our description of everything under the sun as we can. And last, we are to learn not to covet. Tenth commandment. Charles' catechism used by Presbyterians gives a wonderful description of what that means to children. Thou shalt not covet, says the catechism means, be happy with what you've got. Be happy with what you've got. Because if you're going to make yourself unhappy, wishing you had this, oh, I want this, and I want this three-speed radiogram, and I want a second car, and a third color TV, and a fourth boat, and a fifth a bungalow by the sea. Now, let me tell you, the more you get, the more you're going to want greed, greed, greed. You'll be visible. You may not believe it, but it's the truth. I've known many millionaires, quite a few millionaires in my life. And I can honestly testify that with very few exceptions, the millionaires that I have known are the most miserable, lustful, covetous, unhappy people on the face of God's earth. Seems strange. You know, you may think, oh, if only I had a million bucks, I'd be real happy. Yes, if you receive the grace of God to know how to deal with it wisely. But a lot of people that become millionaires have so become it because they've made the acquisition of wealth their God and the more they grab, grab, grab the more they want and so 
God is not impoverishing us when he tells us to be happy with what you've got. Don't covet. Telling us that because he loves us. Because he doesn't want to see us make ourselves unhappy with a gimme religion. Give me this and give me that and give me the other. And let everyone else go to the devil for all I care. People who think that way are unhappy. Be content with what you have. Contentment with godliness is great gain. Well now, that's the law of God. The law of man opposes the law of God on all or some of those points. The law of man is the law of death. It's the law of sin. It's the law that leads to hell. It's the law of unhappiness in this life, here and now, and in the life to come. Which of these two ways are you walking on, my friend? You're walking on God's law, the one that leads to heaven, that will give you happiness not just when you die, but in this life, here and now, when you really live according to Jesus and his law here and now. Or are you on the unhappy road of destruction that leads to hell and heartache and tear shed and grief? Oh, if you're on the wrong road, will you not this second in the power of God's Holy Spirit be converted, repent, turn around on that road, come to your senses, see where it's leading to your destruction, to your unhappiness and the unhappiness of your loved ones that you live with. Turn from it. Turn to God. Walk back to God. The road of grace. The road of happiness. The road of spirit-filled obedience to his holy law. For that's the only road that any human being can walk on and be really happy even if you're surrounded by storms that would break anyone else, you'll have peace and contentment in the eye of that hurricane. Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye perish, saith the Lord. For any questions, we'll try and deal with them. Well, I'll give you a little homework. Take a look at the book of Daniel, and maybe expounding it in Honoray. But read Daniel 1, and see how in Daniel 1 he stands up for the law of God against the law of man. Read Daniel 3, at a time when Daniel's friends were told they were going to be fried if they didn't idolatrously bow down before the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar and they refused and would sooner have died than done that see how God wonderfully delivers them and then read Daniel 4 to see how God deals with Nebuchadnezzar who had made a God out of himself how God reduced him to the level of an animal in great unhappiness until he turned from his wicked ways and sought the law of God and the God of the law and became a happy man. And read Daniel 6 to see how Daniel continued to pray to the true God after being prohibited by an ungodly state under the leadership of Darius and his far more wicked advisers and enjoined to cease praying to God which he refused to do. 
and how he was thrown to the lions but how God delivered him from the mouth of the lions read the book of Daniel and in those chapters Daniel 1 Daniel 3 Daniel 4 and Daniel 6 see how the road to happiness in life is the often unpopular road of following the law of God and the road to unhappiness and destruction is the road of the law of man that leads to perdition. Would you like to comment on the fact that we are in a similar position to Daniel, that today we are in, um, in slavery and captivity like uh, Daniel was? Would you consider we are in captivity today? Questions yes, I would say to some extent many areas of society in the world uh, are in a similar situation to Daniel. Uh, it's probably true that it's much more difficult to be a Christian in New Zealand than it is in the United States today. In many ways it's easier, I think, to be a Christian in South Africa than it is in the United States today. Uh, but let me tell you, it's much easier to be a Christian in New Zealand today than it would be to be a Christian in the Soviet Union or Red China or Albania today. And I think that those situations, Red China, Soviet Union, and especially Albania, have come perhaps closer to the terrible totalitarian law of man situation that Daniel faced in his lifetime. And yet notice that even in that situation, Daniel was not only happy and had a serenity about him as he risked his life again and again, but God vindicated Daniel and gave him great political prestige even in that kind of a wicked system, which is remarkable. I think Daniel believed in an eschatology of victory and experienced it on a daily basis in his life, and you and I should too. Dick. How we should we understand our jobs if we're working in a business situation, but a business owned by non-Christians? I think that... Um, it's nicer, of course, for us if we are working in a business owned by a Christian, provided that Christian really applies his Christian and his business methods. If he doesn't, you may be far better off working for a non-Christian who, by God's common grace, uh, has uh, better working conditions and more honorable business standards than that so-called true or phony Christian uh, whom you could otherwise be working for. I would say as long as you have considerable scope uh, to further God's kingdom in doing a good job and to testify when you can and to offer something of value to the public which although they could abuse it as just about anything is abusable that you may be involved in manufacturing or merchandising uh, but that whatever it is that you're involved in, uh, in selling or spreading as a commodity could also be used to God's glory that uh, this is what you should continue to do and do it in the best way that you can as unto the Lord. Your situation then would be very similar, would it not, uh, as that of the New Testament slave working for, a uh, Christian slave working for a uh, non-Christian slave owner. And Paul's advice is, uh, work harder, do a reliable job, and in that way how do you know that you won't win your slave owner uh, to the Lord? And, and your job, whatever it is, probably a lot more pleasant than that of many of these Christian slaves on their work in New Testament times. 
but um, if you care to read um, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 and 1 Timothy 6 I think it is I think you'll get some directives there uh, which uh, will speak to you in your present employmental situation whatever it is and 1 Corinthians 7 as I said before be content in the job in which you are at the moment but if you get opportunity for job advancement grab it you ready to go home or any more questions just for a quick one the rectitude of uh, Rembrandt's painting uh, which particular painting the, uh, just his general uh, um, Rembrandt is a very interesting figure I don't know as much about his life as I'd like to but it is my understanding that at various times of his life he was successively exposed to Roman Catholicism Anabaptism and Calvinism and I think that this uh, admixture of different religious motives is reflected in much of his painting now, I believe he was a very great painter and uh, I think uh, uh, a Christian man too let me say um, but I think he was confused now and then not only in his understanding of scripture but also his understanding of what is permissible for him to have painted I would have to say that Rembrandt's pictures of Christ uh, are masterfully executed uh, from a technical perspective but like any other painter's pictures of Christ really do involve uh, painting uh, illegitimate objects um, now that doesn't mean that we should go around like Karlstadt with a hammer and a pickaxe uh, uh, smashing Rembrandt's pictures like Karlstadt went around in the Catholic churches uh, with a sledgehammer uh, bashing uh, statues of Virgin Mary uh, and supposedly of Christ to Luther's horror when he came back but I think it does mean that we point out to people that uh, this is a sinful aspect of Rembrandt's painting. On the other hand, of course, it's not just an attempt in Rembrandt or any other artist to depict Christ visibly that it's sinful. Uh, all other attempts of any artist to depict something which is legitimate, such as a pear or still life, uh, but to depict it inadequately, incorrectly, in a God-dishonoring way, or even technically unexcellently, would also uh, involve some aspect of sin. I would think one would need to take the same attitude when you look at some of these uh, Renaissance paintings of naked female bodies. Some of them are very excellently executed. But, uh, and, and, and you just wonder in admiration at the mastery of the artist but I think one's going to have to say that after the fall the female body naked should not be depicted that's displeasing to God now I'm not suggesting you go around in art galleries uh, putting sheets over those portions uh, you laugh uh, there was a case like this in South Africa it was some multi-million dollar building in Pretoria government building and uh, the contractor was told to put a uh, what was it, uh, Department of Social Welfare or something involving welfare to the family and this commissioned sculptor went and on top of this beautiful building put this family cluster of a man, a woman and a child and all of them stark naked 
Well, I want to tell you, the Dutch Reformed Church went to town and uh, there was a controversy for months in the paper about this. Here we're supposed to be a Christian nation, we have this. And finally, this statue was removed. But the press had a ball. We had cartoons for months on end of uh, this statue with sheets draped over it and the, and the head cut off and, uh, I don't know, and other parts cut off. It, it was really something. So I'm not sure that's the most intelligent way to handle it, but um, I do agree basically with the objection of the Dutch Reformed Church. But I think they should have caught the thing before the statue was put up there. So it's not always easy, but I think these are the assessments that we should make. <clears throat> okay? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.